Hello, and welcome to For Your Listening Pleasure, a podcast focused on talking with interesting and diverse individuals and discussing how their backgrounds shape them into the people they are today. I am your host, Mallory Waxman. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to be welcoming Wendy Berger. Wendy is the CEO and founder of WBS Equities. She's a serial entrepreneur, an avid triathlete, and a strategic leader. Wendy has also paved the way for women in the cannabis industry and currently serves on the board of directors of Green Thumb Industries. For today's conversation, I'll be joined by my guest co-host, Seth Kaplan. Wendy, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk with us. Why don't we start at the beginning and you tell us what was life like for you growing up? Big question. Mallory, thanks so much for having me here with you today. Just delighted to have this opportunity to to talk about my experiences and share with people some of what's led me to where I am today. But I was born in Evanston, Illinois, uh, Evanston Hospital, grew up half in the city of Chicago, half in the suburbs. My parents were divorced very early in my life. And uh, I grew up believing that I had the best of both worlds as a city kid and a suburban kid, Um, but really truly, truly consider myself a city kid. Uh, I had a really interesting, to me at least, and I hope interesting to others, career path. In my life, I thought I would have two jobs. I thought I'd have my first job and my second job. And I thought that first job would be training for my second job. And I was very focused on business. You know, even (laughs) I answered a question recently of what did you want to be when you were young? And, you know, most people wanted to be astronauts or the president of the United States. I looked back at something and it involved building a diorama and I wanted to be a banker. I had built this diorama of a bank. I mean, what kind of a kid at something like nine or 10 years old wants to be a banker? But I, I think I was born with math in my blood and with a, a desire for to, to be in the finance world or maybe just as a capitalist. So I started my first job in commercial banking at the Old American National Bank, which is now part of J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, as a very traditional banker, middle market, you know, widget lending type clients. And it was a really great experience in that I learned really fundamentals of how to look at businesses, how to become kind of a 30 second expert on everything and a real expert on nothing. But it also framed my thinking about risk and risk tolerance and how to evaluate risk. And from American National Bank, I went to work for a family business. My family had a third generation real estate business. And I was one of three members of the third generation to join the business. And that's what I thought I would do for the rest of my life. And I really believed that's what I wanted. And what I ultimately found was like a lot of family businesses, ours wasn't going to make the transition from second generation to third generation smoothly. And I really sort of shook my thinking to the very core. This is who I thought I was and who I thought I would be forever and how I defined myself. And through a a very difficult process effectively of a family business breakup, I really had to say, oh my God, who am I and who do I wanna be? 
and it accidentally led me down this path of being an entrepreneur. I had always thought of myself as one, but I thought of myself in, in that respect in terms of being in my family business. And ultimately, um, through an accidental exchange with my best friend's younger brother, I took a 10-year detour into technology startups. Uh, we were fortunate enough to build one of the first, what we think was either the first or second website development company in the United States. Uh, this was 1994-ish. And at the time, one of the things that I still remember and laugh was, you know, we were the typical garage or loft startup. We literally started in a friend's loft apartment in Bucktown. And, it, you know, we were working on card tables that we bought at Walmart. And some days I would come in and his socks were on my table. And it was everything you think about. We were financing the business on credit cards. But what was most striking at the time was we could make a list of every single website that was on the internet, excluding universities. And it was a list that was less than 40, i sorry, less than 50 websites. And I still remember some of the top ones. And like the, the first website I ever visited was a scuba gear company, a company named Decor. And I didn't, what I know, now that I didn't understand then was I had no idea what I was seeing. I didn't understand the internet, but something struck me that this was going to shift all of our thinking and all our behavior fundamentally. And we quickly build that, built that company in less than four years. We sold it. Uh, and I then had the opportunity to be one of the first employees of Orbitz, the travel website. And Orbitz was really different in that it really got me thinking about big thinking. Um, Orbitz was, as much as it was a travel website for consumers, what Orbitz really was, was meant to be a technology platform for the airlines to reduce their costs of issuing tickets. So Orbitz was founded by Continental Airlines, American Airlines, Northwest Airlines, Delta Airlines, and United. And, and that's the backstory that most people don't know. And this wasn't like the startup that I had done before with the website company and that we were you know, in a loft and financing it on our credit cards. The airlines gave us $150 million and said, go, and go fast. And I think in my first week at Orbitz, I issued purchase orders to two companies, Oracle and Sun Microsystems, for $5 million each. And so this led me to this starting to think about really big thinking. And in Orbitz, it was like life on a rocket ship. It was strap yourself in, you're going into uncharted territories. No one had done this before. And by the way, go fast and really go fast. And in one year, we went from zero in revenues to a billion dollars in revenues. So it really shifted the way I started to think. And at the time when you're so deep in it, you're working seven days a week, you, you really don't have a sense of where you're going. And it is only this ability to reflect now and say, that was really an extraordinary experience. And that helped me think about who I am and, and what I wanted to be and 
why I was here and what my goals and purpose in life. And it, and it seems a stretch to think about, you know, the job makes you think about all of these other things. But when you're spending seven days a week and nearly 24 hours a day thinking about this and working, at some point you start to shift your thinking. And after I left, or I left Orbitz about four years into it, when it went from a startup to a travel agency effectively. And, and what I realized was I love the startup phase. I am a serial entrepreneur. I am a junkie for the chaos piece of it. And one of my favorite things about it was this, one of my mantras, and we'll, you'll hear me talk a lot about mantras from chaos comes opportunity. And where I didn't really see the opportunities at that time, as I reflected, I was able to say, okay, here's how you navigate through chaos. And those lessons that I learned in my business I took into my personal life and at around the same time, I started doing triathlons and, and this connection between what it takes to be an athlete and the mental aspects of that and the mental aspects of being an entrepreneur gave me the courage to leave Orbitz when it went from a startup to a stable company uh, to I left Orbitz and I bought an old hotel on the near a uh, municipal or private airport in the suburbs of Chicago. And my thinking was that I could take what I had learned about people's behavior on the internet and my love of real estate that came from working in my family business and combine the two. And that brought me back to the real estate business and fast forward to where I am today. I started my business 17 years ago uh, the business is WBS Equities, and we specialize in ground-up construction, renovation, and sale leasebacks of food manufacturing and food distribution facilities. So I literally get to see how the sausage is made. Uh, and these are really complex manufacturing facilities that we build, but in this very narrow, narrow niche of food manufacturing and food distribution. Uh, and I love that business. I, I love the clients and tenants and customers that I get to work with. And particularly at this moment during the pandemic, where we all have come to understand the critical needs of our food supply and what happens with disruptions in the food supply. Um, it, it's felt good to be an economic engine um, and, and to help maintain this critical part of our economy, even in my small way. Uh, and at some point, we'll talk about it about seven years ago, I also got into the legal marijuana business. And that came also from my ability to think big and think about the skill sets from my real estate development business and how they could translate into other entrepreneurial activities. And again, going back to my thinking about risk and risk assessment and courage. And I think that's how I got to where I am today. It's been a, it's been a long and winding journey. Wendy, you've spent most of your career in very male dominated industries such as commercial banking or commercial real estate. When you started, did you receive any pushback and how did you end up navigating um, these male dominated industries? Still get it 
fairly often. And I'm one of these women who, while I am a great feminist, I like to lead with my skills and my intellect and not with this hard shell of saying, you know, here's how hard it is to be a woman. Uh, but the fact is that there are so few women in these industries that I have been in, and particularly in industrial real estate development. Uh, I have told the story several times, and I won't name names, of a couple of years ago, this is really only about two, two and a half years ago, walking into a construction trailer on a very large, sophisticated, complex construction project, and I walked in a couple of minutes late to a meeting that was already happening. And there were about 12 men sitting around a conference room table in a double wide construction trailer. And I walked in wearing my hard hat, my boots and my construction vest, took off my hard hat and went to grab a bottle of water before I sat down. And one of the men looked up and said, hey, can you get me a cup of coffee? Or he said, can you make me a cup of coffee? And there were a few in the room who knew that this was my project, right? I don't like to say this, but I was the boss. The entire project was mine. They were all effectively working for me, but I don't feel the need to lead with that because I'm a big fan of building right teams and being a team player. Uh, and I just looked up and said, no, I don't know how to make coffee. And that is actually the truth. And it's probably something I did intentionally over time. I'm not a coffee drinker. I'm a tea drinker. So I never learned how to make coffee. And it also let me answer that question very honestly and not shooting a look back saying, are you kidding me? You know, I'm a 50 something year old woman and you made the assumption when I walked into this construction trailer that you, know, you judged me based on the fact that I was a woman and you made an assumption about everything. Uh, there were a couple of audible gasps when the question was asked of me. And a few people came up to me afterwards and said, you know, how come you didn't make a stink about that? And, and my answer was, I don't need to. But yeah, it's something, uh, you know, I think each of us faces these biases and judgments every time we walk in. And perhaps that's helped me, not perhaps, it's, it's certainly helped me deepen my own empathy and, and really try to be conscious about bias, whether it's conscious bias or unconscious bias, and not judge people the way I did. But yeah, it, it's a challenge every day. And I think as women, and certainly in the role that I'm in today, I feel an enormous responsibility, a weight on my shoulders that I willingly take on to talk about these issues and to ask people, not in a negative way, but in a very positive way to not judge and to believe that as a woman walking in, there is no difference between me and anyone else in the room. And we're all there to play our role on a team. Uh, and my role as a leader puts me in a position where I get to use my voice and my words to shout out this message um, to help women and to encourage women and women and minorities to face their fears and not be held back 
and not let anyone's perception of them hold them back from their dreams. In 2014, you co-founded Illinois Women in Cannabis. The cannabis industry, especially in the state of Illinois, is newer. Um, And you would think that with an industry that's kind of just starting to take off, there wouldn't be glass ceilings. Um, But that really wasn't the case. There still were some barriers. So I know you helped co-found this non-for-profit Would you mind talking a little bit about that and the work that Illinois Women in Cannabis does? Yeah. So in 2014, I co-founded Illinois Women in Cannabis with a woman named Dina Rollman, who is also a pioneer in the cannabis industry. And our thinking around this as the medical marijuana market was becoming legal in Illinois was that this would be a wonderful opportunity for women, that there would be no glass ceiling, or as we call it, grass ceiling, that there would be no old boys network, and there would be no barrier for women to achieve the highest level positions or to start in those highest level positions. And I also believed that this was a business where empathy would really matter where compassion would matter. And not that women are more compassionate or more empathetic than men, but we tend to lead with that and not be as concerned about expressing that in a business setting. And sadly, I was dead wrong. Um, The glass ceiling, grass ceiling existed from day one. The old boys network was absolutely there. And I don't mean this to be overly critical, it's just factual. Men have these networks, whether they're in the locker room, on the golf course, on the basketball court, where they're building connections and relationships. And when a deal comes along or it comes to raising money for a deal, they have these networks of friends and friends' families and friends of friends who have historically had the capital to invest in new startups, in deals. And we didn't think that would be a barrier and it turned out to be an enormous barrier to women succeeding. But what we've accomplished with Illinois Women in Cannabis is we have become the premier networking and connectivity organization in the cannabis business in Illinois. And despite the fact that women is in the name of the organization, we routinely had, you know, when we were in person pre-pandemic, and we believe we'll have it again post-pandemic, more than 500 people at every single one of our events. It went from 24 people at our first event, including about 10 or 12 of my friends that I begged to be there so that we wouldn't have an empty room, um, to now having more than 500 people. And the balance is roughly 50-50 between men and women. But what we did was we brought people together to connect and to try to understand the opportunities in this industry and that this was brand new and there would be opportunities in every type of role and whatever you wanted to bring to it from your prior experience, whether you were a marketing professional, a finance professional, whether you were incredibly knowledgeable about the plant, but that you could carve out a role in this industry for yourself. So I think we've, we're really proud, Dina and I, of what we've built. I'm no longer involved on a day-to-day basis, which means to me that I succeeded. There's a full board of directors. Um, there's an enormous volunteer community and incredible enthusiasm around it. 
So I'm really proud of what Dina and I, and now the rest of the primarily women leading this organization are doing and have done to illuminate the opportunities for women and minorities to get into this industry. It, it, people call me all the time and say, how do I get into the industry? What's the first step? And this is often for many of us taking on new challenges. The hardest part is stepping off that first step, stepping off the curb and starting your walk. And this is a great venue for people to convene safely and, and with people who are like-minded. Do you think the uh, government plays a role in making sure that there's equity in the cannabis industry too? I really do. Um, one of the most interesting aspects of being in the marijuana business is facing um, how we got to the position where we are today. Um, I believe that we, this, in this country, we have spent an enormous amount of money on an absolute failed war on drugs. And the impact of that failed war on drugs was disproportionately, and, and disproportionately doesn't even feel like a strong enough word. It The failed war on drugs decimated communities of color um, to a lesser extent, but I don't mean to lessen it at all, um, the Latinx community. And when I think about the decimation that happened, I think about the impact not just on the person who was incarcerated for minor drug offenses, but what I think of as three or four generations of that family. Um, and when you, when I think about my own role in this industry, the meaning is not lost on me that because of the color of my skin and because the zip code I was born in and the day I got started in this business, I'm poised to make money doing what people are still in jail for. Thankfully, um, mass expungement programs are in play and working, but people have been decimated. Their lives, their families, and their communities have been decimated. And we, along, we in the industry, along with governments who are issuing licenses for people to grow and sell cannabis, have a role in making sure that minorities are given opportunities and that we as leaders in the industry are helping. And, and you can think of these as more than mentoring programs, right? If I think about how we struggled to raise capital to start our business and um, in the cannabis industry, I'm on the board of Green Thumb Industries and we've now been a publicly traded company since June of 2018. Prior to going public, we raised over $200 million. Well, let's, let's take somebody who they or their families had been disproportionately impacted, right? They were either convicted of drug offenses or their community was decimated. And they now want to get into this industry. They are entrepreneurs, they have the vision. How are they gonna raise the money to do this? Where do they get the skills to know how to take that first step? And I think it is incumbent on those of us in the industry and those of us who are leaders to create those opportunities. And ultimately, let me, let me go back on that a second. We can't create the opportunity to get into the business because these are licenses currently that are issued by states, but we can help people fill out the applications for, to apply for those licenses. We can provide 
entrepreneurship training, business startup training. We can provide capital to finance these businesses. And when I say capital, I don't mean taking an ownership position. I mean, actually connecting people with capital or providing capital ourselves for these businesses. And that's an obligation that all of us have, those in government and those in the industry and working together. I really believe personally, I can't change the past, but I do believe that the position I'm in today, I get to impact the future. Wendy, I have to ask, are you an army of one in thinking like this? Um, I believe you are spot on, but do you believe that people in your situation recognize what has happened in the past and are they working towards changing the future? I am not an army of one. I am delighted to say that I am not an army of one. I think there are many different approaches, but I do think that the leaders in this industry, primarily the leadership of the larger companies, believes what I believe and that we're all doing very interesting things. And even at the state level in Illinois and in many other states where marijuana is legal, both at the medical and adult use recreational or medical only, are really thinking about social equity and responsible ways to put licenses in the hands of minorities. And so for example, in Illinois, all of us who were license holders or who are existing license holders, when Illinois transitioned to adult use recreational on January 1st of 2020, we had to pay additional license fees to for new licenses that the law entitled us to. And I don't know the exact numbers, but the vast majority of those fees went into a fund that will help minorities who are issued licenses under a social equity program fund their businesses. So we as the leaders were required to put money in. Um, We as Green Thumb Industries didn't believe that was enough. So we created a program that we call LEAP and it's effectively a boot camp training program for anyone who wants to get into the business to learn and take advantage of the resources that Green Thumb has internally. And that's everything from application writing, which you can think of as grant writing, they're very complex applications, to how to build a pro forma, how to staff a dispensary, how to hire, how to train, how to learn about the products, how to think about distribution, and ultimately how to think about safe and responsible adult use of cannabis. So I think there are many of us who are really thinking very hard and not simply saying, oh, let's put some money into a fund or let's loan money to people who are saying, we have a real responsibility. And again, we can't change the past, but we can absolutely impact the future and impact the opportunities. And so I'm proud of what we as Green Thumb as a company are doing. And while the industry isn't going to get it right, I think we're going to get it more right than wrong. And over time, we are learning, we're doing a lot of listening to communities and to people who have lived this experience 
and helping them to understand. So one of the things we did as a company several years ago, we started having expungement fairs. So we would bring together and think of it as like a rotary hall or a VA hall, lawyers who were working on a pro bono basis and anyone from the community that we did this in could come and say, here is my record for drug offenses. Am I eligible? Or what is my path to expunging my record? And, and then you think about the next steps in that. Okay, if we can get someone's record expunged, how do we get them the drop, job training they need? Even the basics. We know that when someone comes out of prison, they don't even have proper identification. Right? And if you start, and if you don't have a proper ID, you can't get housing, you can't get a job, you can't get transportation. So it's rebuilding the very fundamental building blocks. We recently have partnered with an amazing organization called the Last Prisoner Project that was started by one of the founders in the cannabis industry in the United States, a guy named Steve DeAngelis. And it really is a organization that is dedicated to thinking about the best path forward and putting programs into, into existence now. They're doing things real time. They're doing it fast. They're doing it efficiently. They're doing it effectively. And again, we're all gonna make missteps along the way, but I give the industry credit for thinking about it and trying to do it and listening to those who have been impacting and doing what we can to create change. And this all comes back to, you know, one of the big themes in my life, which is practicing empathy and really thinking about where I sit today and what my responsibilities are and taking on those responsibilities. Why do you think there's such a stigma still? You know, it's, it's not federally um, legal. Uh, and even municipalities within states that have legalized it very much limit where you can have dispensaries. You know, we live in Chicago and Chicago has one of the highest per capita bar uh, uh, presence in, in the country. Uh, why can't there be more, more of a presence of, of marijuana dispensaries? Well, the good news is that the shift in thinking is happening really quickly, right? So Illinois became a medical marijuana state, call it 2015-ish, 2020. Um, we went to adult use and medical. And there are, as of the election in November of 2020, I may be off in my numbers, but let's call it 39 or 40 states that will now have some form of legalized marijuana. That's a big shift and a big shift very quickly. I think it's something like 73% of the American population now lives in states where some form of marijuana is legal. Um, and doing important things that go along with legalization, which is decriminalizing possession. But we are still dealing with an 80 or 90 year history of marijuana being classified along with drugs like heroin and meth. And the fact is that stigmatization did not come from the impact of this plant. 
that stigmatization came from xenophobia. It came from the desire for political power, the desire for budgets. And we think about what happened um, in the early days of the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. The head of that administration needed a power grab. He needed a large budget to build his organization. So what did he do? He, you know, he created this incredible fear around cannabis and that people were growing crazy and that they were doing, you know, that these drugs were, were, were connected in any way with criminal activity. Um, and then came the 60s when there was a desire to sort of put down the voices of uh, Vietnam era protesters. And one way to do that was arrest them for marijuana use. So you created this real negative image around this plant. And one of the things that I say often about the industry is tax it and talk about it, right? So the way people talk to their children about alcohol, right? Because once you're over 21, alcohol is legal. Parents are, who are primarily over 21 can say to their children, this is not legal for you. You are under 21. Um, parents who are consumers and are over 21 are generally not talking to their children about it because they're doing something illegal. If you reframe it and say, let's tax it and let's talk about it, once it's legal to use over 21, I think parents were, will be more willing. And then I, I think about states, like if you really want to think about how fast the change has come, I'll, I'll pick out a couple states that have legalized marijuana, Utah, Oklahoma, Arkansas, uh, but just picking on those, like Montana, these are traditionally very conservative, without commenting on political affiliation, conservative in thinking states. How did this happen in those states? And in part, it happened because people saw the reality of how big the illegal market is, how their communities were being decimated in part by the opioid epidemic. And while marijuana isn't the answer to the opioid epidemic, it's part of the solution. It's interesting to me that you're talking about education and having um, parents talk to their kids. So I grew up in a household where um, I knew what a quaalude was at like 11 years old. Like my parents <laughs> never hid that from me. They were very open about talking about their drug use growing up and drinking. So I knew what that was from them. But then I would be in school you know, in middle school and health, learning that if you smoke marijuana, you're going to go to jail because you're yeah. a criminal instead of like what I've heard from my parents. So I think there's a huge disconnect because parents are not talking to their kids about drugs and you're only learning about, you know, those after school movies where it's like, oh, they smoke a joint, they're hallucinating and now they're going to go to jail, which is not the case at all. Yeah. Um, and then when it comes with the opioid relating marijuana to the opioid like epidemic is just not a fair comparison when you're looking at the prescriptions that really are leading it and I think that you know I'm so excited that we're talking to you and the work that you're doing to really try to educate the public and you know you're working with trying to help correct the wrongs from the past because I think that drugs as a whole get categorized but marijuana has so many more benefits 
then, you know, it shouldn't be classified with a heroin or an Oxycontin or meth, but in the past, it's how it always has been. So having to redirect that education. Mallory, this is a plant with a 5,000 year history. And it may sound like an overstatement to some, but I call this the miracle plant. We're just uncovering the benefits and understanding the real chemistry of this plant and, and its applicability to treating so many medical conditions. But the fact is it's a 5,000 year documented history of use of this plant. Uh, and the stigmatization is really only relatively new and the stigmatization happened for the wrong reason. So really talking about it, being willing to promote safe adult use and really understanding the benefits. And again, going back to a state like Utah or Arkansas or Oklahoma, they, they, they felt in every single community the impact of the opioid epidemic with approximately 35,000 Americans dying in 2019. I don't have the 2020 statistics from opioid related deaths, overdoses. How, how can you not start to look for the solutions and be willing to be open? I'm not saying that I want to change anybody's opinion of using substances that can be mind altering, right? No different than alcohol, but be open to listening and talking about it. And the fact is that the illegal industry exists. It exists at a level estimated by the United States government of $80 billion a year. We're not regulating it. We're not talking about it. We're not taxing it. And what does that mean? It means that consumers, no matter how they're getting it, if they're getting it from the illegal or illicit market, are, we don't know what they're putting in their bodies. And that's just not safe. So you don't have to be in support of consuming it, but to pretend that it's not real and that we shouldn't be dealing with it is putting your head in the sand. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, I want to hear a little bit more about um, you, your family growing up, you know, you talked about, I'm pivoting a little bit here. You talked about um, growing up and having a family business uh, and anticipating that you were gonna be in the family business. Was that an expectation that came from your parents? Uh, have you talked to your family about, um, you know, being, when you were gonna go into the, the mar you know, marijuana business, was that something that, uh, that came up? Uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about your upbringing, upbringing and how you in your family. I grew up in a single parent household. My mom worked two jobs to support three children. And my mom was unique in that she was fairly progressive in her thinking. So she did talk about these things, but I think that she worried a lot about what would, you know, what we would get into as three kids who had a, a mom with two jobs, it meant that she wasn't home as much as she wanted to be. And that, you know, from dawn till dusk and on the weekends, she was working to keep food on our table and the lights on. Uh, and she talked about drugs a little bit, but I think she was worried, you know, she was more worried like what happens you know, when she's not around. So, but 
turning to the business side of things, I think there was an expectation, not from my mother, but on you know the other side of my family that we'd grow up and we'd go into the family business and and that was it. Um, and what what about your siblings? Were they expected to be part of that too? You know, it was interesting. So, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about my brother, but I think my brother felt enormous pressure. My sister was more artsy, is more artsy than my brother and I, and there was a very different expectation. So as the boy, my brother was expected as a more artsy girl. And frankly, as a girl, my sister, there were no expectations and for me, because I showed an aptitude and interest, there was encouragement. Having said that, the day I finally decided to leave my job at American National Bank and I wanted to go work for my family, uh, the door was closed. I was told that this is not a business for women, uh, that it was going to be too hard. And it, and it took about six months of me arguing my case to be allowed to join the family business. And, you know, there was some pressure there. And I think ultimately having my brother there um, was for me the key because I felt in a lot of ways it was going to be about he and I um, and trying to forge our own path together and take what we thought was a platform that we were among the most fortunate, that we had this family business that we could come into, but then carve out our own path. And so, Wendy, talking about your brother, I know that you went through a really difficult three-year period where you lost your brother in a plane crash, and then your husband passed away as well. Um, You know, when we've talked previously, you talked about how your brother was kind of your partner in life, you know, he was that person that was your cheerleader, your motivator, um, who really gave you that confidence that you could do anything. Um, I, to have such a big loss back to back, how did you push through that? Because you not only lost your brother, but then you lost your husband. Yeah, Mallory, it's, this is the story that I probably talk about most often about myself and people are, are, I think they want to ask questions, but are fearful to ask questions, which was why I'm so open to talking about it. So as you mentioned, in the span of less than four years, my beloved brother was killed in a plane crash uh, and my husband of 24 years committed suicide. And after these two tragedies in such a short amount of time, I was broken. My world was shattered. And it really took me a long time to begin to learn to live with the losses and to no longer feel broken and to try to repair my broken world. And as I began to to feel less broken, and it took, you know, there were days where all I could think about was one breath, one step, one moment at a time. there were days where my greatest victory was getting out of bed. I've, I've come a long way from that. And as I began to feel less broken and I regained mental strength, 
I thought a lot about consciously living a joyful life, a purposeful life and a meaningful life. Um, and, and the courage that it took. And somewhere along the way, I came up with some mantras. I, I, being an athlete really helped. Um, and, and having a business that I had worked so hard to create, right? And when you're, you know, own your own business, when you're a serial entrepreneur, um, you're the chief garbage picker upper and the chief technology officer and if you're not working things aren't happening and I knew that I didn't want to let my business fall apart so there were ledges that I could cling to as I felt like I was crawling my way back to strength and I came up with all these mantras that would that I thought would help guide me through my transformation into what I started to think about was my new life and ultimately some of those mantras translated into, okay, how do I connect that to my real estate business? And somehow being a developer, it came upon this idea of tools in my tool belt. So I started coming up with tools in my tool belt that I would need or that I thought could be helpful in repairing my broken world and building a new life. And I know two aspects that really helped you kind of rebuild was um, your faith really getting in touch with Judaism and what like the teachings are. And on the opposite spectrum where you and I have spoken about previously is triathlons and that training and that alone time. So we're going to talk about both, but let's first talk about um, how did Judaism and that connection to the teachings um, provide or maybe give you a tool in that tool belt? So two of the most fundamental principles or foundational thinking in Judaism, um, two Hebrew words or phrases. The, the first is sadaka, And some people have heard the word sadaka and they think it means charity. And occasionally they'll see a sadaka box in someone's home. So there's a little box that you put coins into. But the, the better translation of the word sadaka means justice. And dovetailing on that, there is an exp- two words, tikkun olam. And tikkun olam translates into repairing the world. And one of the beliefs in Judaism is that we are the chosen people. And chosen doesn't mean better. It means chosen for an obligation. And those obligations to me really are to justice and to help to repair our broken world. And and so those two concepts, which were so core in my life, resonated even more so as I was trying to build my broken life and my broken world. And so, but my faith in Judaism and my, the leaders in my life, I have two rabbis who I'm really close to. And one of my rabbis said to me right afterwards, he said, come to my office. This was shortly after my husband's death, um, probably did this after my brother's death and my husband's death. And I, he called me on the phone and I said, look, Rabbi, if you want to talk to me about my faith in God, or you want to talk to me about getting more involved in the temple, or if you want to talk to me about giving more money, this is not the time. And he said to me, 
stop arguing with me and just come to my office. So I finally sat down in his office and he looked at me and he said, this is what Judaism teaches us. Judaism teaches us that we must live our lives, that there is a grieving period which is defined by Judaism. So one of the things Judaism does really well is frame thinking and behavior. There are rules around behavior, rules with a quote, but um, rules around behavior related to mourning. Um, we, we sit for seven days in our homes called Shiva. And Shiva's meant to give you the time to not have to get up and leave your house, to not have to put clothing on, to not think about your appearance and to not have to interact in the normal world as though everything's normal because it's not. And then there's a 30-day period called Shloshim where you are really, I, I'm summarizing very quickly, but you're not expected to function normally. But at the end of those 30 days, you are expected to get up and live. That was hard to hear, right? It's not what we want to hear. When I lost my brother, I didn't want to live. It, it's that simple. I didn't think I could live. I didn't want to live. I couldn't imagine ever being happy again. And he was very stern in his teachings to say that you must live. And that really helped me think about how to find concepts I couldn't think about at the time, that it was okay to laugh, that, I, that it was okay to find joy, that there was great meaning in life and that you don't get over grief, but you learn how to carry it. And, and so that's how, and, and interestingly, because I do a lot of work in the Jewish community, um, I sit on the board of the Jewish United Fund and Jewish Federation of Metropolitan Chicago. And it's a board that I've sat on for almost 18 years. And I took a little bit of time away. And after a couple of months, I realized it was time to go back to a meeting. And after, after losses, you feel a real sense of fragility. And, and I wanted to have this protective bubble around myself. And when I walked into my first Jewish Federation board meeting, the entire, it felt as though the entire room enveloped me. This was my community. And I had purpose and meaning in this community and that they knew what they were looking at in me, but they hadn't lost faith in me. They didn't see me as broken. I might've felt broken and at times seen myself as broken. They didn't. And they encouraged me to take these steps of doing the things that gave me so much meaning in my life. And one of those things, oddly enough, led me to, um, there's a lot of interfaith work that we do um, and inner community work, and particularly with the communities of color in Chicago. And there's a pastor that I've done a lot of work with, a pastor named Chris Harris uh, from the Bright Star Church. And I remember shortly after losing, I think it was after my brother, sitting in Pastor Harris's church in the basement where his office was. And I think I spent two hours with Pastor Chris Harris and he shared with me. And it was so funny that I now say, in addition to my two rabbis, I have my own pastor. 
But I, think, these, I think one thing the Jewish community does a really good job of is we pray together, we mourn together, we celebrate together. Yeah. And I'm really glad that that's been your experience. Uh, yeah, and, well. and the, the meaning and the work that we do in the community, um, it, it just one of the things I joke about, about the Jewish Federation is our incredible staff is really good at recognizing and rewarding success and basically giving people promotions. So as a volunteer, the minute you do something that you do well or show great enthusiasm for, you're immediately rewarded with more responsibility. <laughs> and so I had these things that I could... We like to call that voluntold. <laughs> I love that. That's a great expression. So immediately I had things to do that were meaningful and purposeful. And I knew I was making a difference and that, that, that faith and just connection to the community and the connection to the, that it provided me to the broader communities helped me build my new life. Wendy, talk to us about your experience being a triathlete and what do those conversations that you have with yourself look like? when you're training or competing? I could never have imagined that this accidental journey into becoming a triathlete, and it was truly accidental. I was never an athlete as a kid or even as a young woman. I, I, I literally stumbled into it. I could never have imagined the impact that it's had on my personal life and on my business life. And I could never have imagined how much I would make the connection between mind and body and mental strength and physical strength. And early in my triathlon career, I remember going out for runs and I would start my run and I'd get a little bit into it. And in my head, I would say, why am I doing this? Like, what's the purpose? Why am I, I could just go for a walk and everything would be so nice. And so I would stop and walk. And then I really realized that that wasn't serving my values, that what I wanted to practice was values-driven behavior. And at the time I said to a therapist that I was seeing, have you ever done anything with sports psychology? And she said, no. And I said, well, are you open to doing it? To doing it? And she said, yes. And she found a book, read it, and then passed along that book to me. And the book had all of these lessons about mental training. And I remember hearing around the same time, Michael Phelps, the, you know, I don't know how many Olympic medals, 20 something Olympic medals, saying that 50% of his training time was spent on mental training time outside of the pool. And I couldn't understand that at all. I, I had zero sense of it. So I started going down a rabbit hole of reading uh, books about mental training for athletes. And, and one of the better books was called The Inner Game of Tennis, published, I think, 30 or 40 years ago that gets republished every year about seeing the ball and, you know, to quote from Kedishak, be the ball. Uh, and I came up with, all of these mantras from my reading about why I was doing it and, and how to stay in it. And things like, 
getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? That values-driven behavior means confront your emotions before acting on them, right? So that if I'm running and I have a pain in my calf, before I say, oh my God, I have a pain in my calf, I should stop running. I think, okay, what am I really feeling? Do a little self-diagnosis. If the diagnosis is stop and walk, fine. But if the diagnosis is this is, this is in my head, keep running, have the courage. Um, things like breathe in peace, breathe out fear. All of these, you know, conscious relaxation is another one. Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of them. I keep a list of them all in my phone. Uh, but this notion of when you're running, biking, or swimming, um, trying to get your mind and body in the same place at the same time is like the holy grail for me. That is what I am going for. And part of that is to learn how to focus better. Part of that is to just have peace, right? A time in our lives where we can turn off the noise or to use a yoga metaphor, just be within the four corners of your mat. And the mental discipline is why they call yoga practice because every run I take isn't easy. Some of them I do a better job at conscious relaxation, at mind and body in the same place at the same time that experience tells athletes what to do and confidence tells us how to do it. They don't work every time, but it's a practice and it's a really worthwhile endeavor. And then when I think about how that's translated into my business life, I'm just stunned at how impactful it's been. It's made me, the strangest connection is probably what a good negotiator I think it's made me because I'm a patient negotiator. I've What's learned how to be silent and not fill dead space. It's interesting to talk about mantras. So a few years ago, I was in like a very broken place and started doing triathlons. And I had signed up for a half Ironman, not owning a bike and never running more than three miles. Like I don't run. And it was an eight month journey to get to the starting line. And those eight months of being alone in your head, working through it, and you're working through whatever you're going through, like mile after mile. And those mantras really do keep you going. Um, for me, it was, you know, in Finding Nemo, Dory saying, just keep swimming. So like, it wouldn't matter if I was swimming, running or biking, I would just say like, just keep swimming, just keep biking, you know, just keep running. And that summer is when Beyonce's Lemonade album came out and that song formation where she just says, I slay. I just said that to myself every single time going like I slay, I got this. And it just kind of kept me going. But I remember my coach said, your mind gives out way before your body. So having that internal conversation of, does my knee really hurt or do I think it's hurting so I can stop? And that, like you said, Wendy, has translated into my professional and personal life. It's, 
is this really uncomfortable or is it just uncomfortable because it's forcing me to grow and forcing me to take a step back and not just act in the moment, but really think before I speak, before I act, before I do anything. Um, For those of you who are listening, who are afraid of doing a triathlon because you think it's a lot, it's an amazing experience even just to do a sprint, there's always local races you can do. And the community um, is so strong and so supportive of whatever you're going through. If it's your first time competing or you just want to get in. And Wendy, I'm not sure if that was your experience as well. Um, But I would always encourage people to try it because it really does transform your life. I I couldn't agree with you more, Mallory. And and again, when I think about my tools and my tool belt and how they're so interconnected with having built a new life after, after, you know, really crushing losses in a short amount of times. I thought a lot about how my own fears and self doubt were holding me back. And one of the things that sports and, and I think, you know, particularly triathlon and running is self doubt holds us back. Um, And, This idea of being courageous and taking on something really big is meaningful in our personal lives, in our professional lives as athletes. And I often ask myself, and particularly I I mentor several young women and I do a decent amount of speaking and I ask people, what would you do if you had no fear? Be courageous and, and, and let go of those fears that don't serve you, right? The, keep, hold on to the fears that are life safety and protective and where the red flashing warning lights are going off. Those are good. But think about what you, and, and, and I'm not even saying action, but think about what you would do if you had no fear and, and how courageous you can be in any element of your life and how game-changing just allowing yourself to think that way. And however that thinking translates into action, just allowing yourself to think will help eliminate self-doubt. And I think so many of us, myself included, are held back by our self-doubt. Great, Wendy, we do wanna thank you uh, for, for joining us today. Uh, we asked the same three questions at, at the end of our uh, sessions here and uh, our podcast. And uh, I think my first one is, is going to be an easy one for you. What, what quote or mantra uh, would you say you live your, your life by or you feel defines you? I think one of my favorites has, has become big thinking. That unbounded thinking and big thinking precedes great accomplishments. I like it. And I can I add one more because I can't settle on just one. Absolutely. Um, practice empathy and, and not be defined. I'm adding two more. Sorry. Not be defined by your past. Um, I think about that in the context of this conversation and sharing my personal story of these two tragic losses. I am not defined by my past. And defining us by defining each of us by our own past limits our ability to think big. Second question we ask every guest is, if you could relive any one day, what day would that be? That's a tough one because my faith says that you can't go back and change anything. So, right, I, I, you know, obviously I would 
give my own life to bring my brother back, um, but that isn't possible. And I try not to spend time looking in the rear view mirror. But if I think about moments of great joy, those are the days I'd relive, right? Not trying to change anything, but trying to feel those feelings of great joy. And, and maybe back to the athletics, I remember um, just a few months after my husband committed suicide, I completed a half uh, a half marathon. I had been training prior to his death with some girlfriends. I didn't have to think about it every Saturday. They just told me where to be for a training run. And when I crossed the finish line four or five months after his death, I just broke down sobbing. And I knew that I was going to be alive and live and I find a way to live that that accomplishment at that moment. And so I hold on to that feeling that was tears of joy and just, you know, this, this triumphant moment where I realized that there, the two deaths of these important men in my life hadn't broken me. Well, Wendy, thank you so much for being so open with us and talking with us about your experiences. And I've, really enjoyed this conversation. Um, so the final question is, if you had a theme song that played every time you walked into a room, what song would that be? My God, that's such a hard question. I'm a music person. So I always have music on. And, you know, as an athlete, I, I swim, bike and run playing music. So how about this? I'll give you an athlete song and then like a work <laughs> song. For uh, me, I have two. I'll be disciplined, you know, and I'm not even going to look at my run playlist. There's a song by a woman named Jonathan Brooke, who used to be part of a band called The Story, and it's called Steady Pull. And, and it really just talks about strength, and she's a singer-songwriter, so it's, it's kind of happy music, but music with a message. And I'm a, I am a you know, nearly lifelong Grateful Dead fan. I went to my first Dead concert at the age of 12, I think. Um, so probably Eyes of the World. And that makes me think of my brother who introduced me to the Grateful Dead. Great. Thank you so much. I will be adding both of those to the For Your Listening Pleasure theme song playlist on Spotify. So listeners can go and listen to your theme songs and who knows, maybe they'll listen to the playlist when they're training for their next race. Well, Mallory, I can't thank you enough for having me today. Love this conversation and I love what awesome. you are doing. Thank you again so much for joining us today. This has been a wonderful conversation and we cannot wait to see where you go next. Thanks. Thanks.